Let's pray, shall we, together? Father, we live in very dark days, and we are more conscious of that, perhaps this year, than ever before. Father, therefore, we thank you that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. And Father, we thank you that though all is dark and shadowy, we have the light of the Word of God beaming in front of us. And we know that we can put our feet down without any fear. We know that you are the Master and you've trodden the way before. We know that you are the Lord of history and you've got it all planned out. And Father, this evening I'm just, I just want to thank you, Lord, and I want to thrill to the prophecy that you've put in the Word of God. Father, because it shows us so clearly that nothing happens outside of your foreknowledge. And therefore it means, as far as we're concerned, that our future is sewn up. That indeed you are the one who can declare that we will have eternal life. That we will reign with Christ. And Father, you speak out of knowledge. And I just thank you, even this evening, Father, that we can stand here and have no fear whatsoever, no matter what happens in this world. Because we know that in the end, Jesus Christ will triumph. And every knee shall bow, even before the Lord of all glory. And tonight we bow the knees of our heart before you, and we come to reverence your name, we come to love you, because we recognize that you have prepared these things for us to study. And we want to say we love your word, but Father, we love you above everything else. And tonight we say that we love you. Just guide our lips, Father, guide our thoughts, even this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, so far in the course on prophecy, we have covered the introductory talks up to prophecy. And we end the introduction, and we begin tonight um, the title of tonight's talk, The Specific Fulfillments of Prophecy. And I will be giving two or three talks, giving examples where prophecy has been specifically fulfilled for us to enjoy and for the world to marvel. Praise God. You remember, don't you, that from last time's talk, the talk number four of this series, we saw that all prophecy in the Bible has to be taken at face value. I don't care what term you use for it. Um, we take it normally. We take it plainly, if you want. We take it literally. I'll even allow you to use that phrase. Historically, grammatically, I don't mind the phrase. But when it says something, we believe that it means what it says and that that word is going to come to pass. Now, Jesus, in a most wonderful way, convinced the disciples that that was how prophecy was going to come to pass. Don't forget that all the disciples were Jews in background and in education. That meant that they recited day after day after day vast passages from the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament probably better than anyone in this room today. They had recited the passages. They were inculcated with the passages. And they had read in the Old Testament marvelous descriptions of the coming Messiah. They had seen him, he's called the Son of Man in Daniel, they had seen him as a figure who was clothed with white, with light pouring out of him, with hair, it says in Daniel 7, like wool with flames all the way around and steam and angels and wonderful glory. And when they thought of the Messiah, that was the picture that came to mind. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, he was the Messiah. But there was no steam and there was no flames and he didn't glow from head to toe. And I know full well that many of the disciples must have had a query in their minds. Well, we know what the Bible says about this Messiah who's coming, that he's this glorious person, but we see Jesus. And it says in the Bible that he has no form or comeliness, that we should look upon him. And they must have gazed at him and thought, well, I don't know, it doesn't match up with the descriptions that we've been given in the Old Testament. And what they must have said was, oh, well, perhaps these are picture language. You know, it's not really steam and flames and glowing garments or anything like that. It's just picture language to encourage our hearts and to show us that he's a wonderful man inside. And Jesus has, has to convince the disciples, no. It is going to come to pass exactly as it is written in the Old Testament. And he does it in the most wonderful way. Would you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 16. And I'm taking the last two verses of Matthew 16. 
Now, many people believe that actually the last two verses of Matthew 16 belong in Matthew 17, and I'm one of them that believes that. So that actually, Matthew 16 ends with Matthew 16, verse 26, and verse 27 and 28 should be read at the beginning of chapter 17. So let's just have a read of verse 27 and verse 28 of Matthew 16. For here is Jesus talking to the disciples, and he says something quite wonderful. He says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. He is reaffirming what the Old Testament says about the Messiah's return. He's coming in glory. Hallelujah. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. And here's an interesting statement, verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now when in the next uh, series in Prophecy I get onto the two witnesses, we're going to come back to that passage and we're going to see it has a wonderful fulfillment. But it also has a fulfillment in chapter 17. Here are the disciples, and Jesus says, I'll tell you this, he said, there are some standing here who are not going to die before they see the Son of Man in all the glory that he's going to have when his kingdom comes. And it's fulfilled only six days later. So if we then go continue through to chapter 17, beginning verse 1, it says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And these are the three that he was referring to in verse 28. These are the ones who would not taste death until they saw the glory of God when the kingdom comes. And notice what it says, verse 2. And he was transfigured. He was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is, is the word metamorphosed. When uh, you go through metamorphosis, you take something and you change its form and its shape. So you take a rough piece of chalk, say, or limestone, and when you metamorphose it, it turns into marble. Or you take a pile of graphite, old carbon, and when you metamorphose it, it turns into a diamond. It's still the same stuff, it just looks different. And they're walking up with Jesus and, and talking, with him, and all of a sudden, instead of being this man from Nazareth, he suddenly becomes changed in form before their very eyes. And look at the description that's given here. He became transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And as soon as they saw it, do you know, all those Old Testament prophecies flicked through their mind. And they must have said, this is exactly the picture of the Messiah coming that we have been taught in the Old Testament. Here he is. Here is Jesus fulfilling Daniel chapter 7. Coming indeed as the great Messiah in his power and for his kingdom. And I think they must have taken several steps back before falling flat on the ground in front of Jesus. He was magnificent. But there was something else. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, all the Jews believed that Elijah would come just before Jesus came in power. And who was there? Elijah. And here was a shock. Moses was there as well. You'll notice, by the way, they recognized them instantly. And that's a very comforting thought for us, because when we all appear in glory in our resurrection body, we're going to recognize everyone. There was no picture of them. They'd never seen a photograph or a videotape recording of Moses or Elijah. No, no. But as soon as they appeared, they knew they were Moses, and they knew they were Elijah. And we're going to recognize, oh, there's Hezekiah. We'll be able to watch him walking down the street. There's Hezekiah. Oh, there's Moses. There's this chap. There's, and we will know instantly who the people are. Praise God. That's one of the advantages of having a resurrection body, by the way. You don't have to have an address list at all. You will know it exactly, automatically. But here was the point. They, Jesus appeared in this form with Moses and Elijah to prove to the disciples that, look, although he was the Messiah as a man, he was coming again and he was going to fulfill the prophecies exactly as they were given and he was going to be glorious. And Moses and Elijah were going to be there as well. 
We know from Luke, I think it is, that actually Jesus spoke to Moses and Elijah, and they had a bit of a conversation. And Jesus spoke about his death. He probably told Moses and Elijah what to expect and not to get worried when they saw it coming to pass. This was all part of the plan, and they were talking about it. Now, this is very important, and you'll notice that Peter was one of the people that witnessed this. And when Peter's talking about his own death, this passage comes back to his mind. And let's see how it comes back to his mind. Turn with me to the second epistle of Peter. The second epistle of Peter. And this is written by Peter. He was probably quite old at this point. He was expecting to die. To Peter. <clears throat> and chapter 1, verse 15. <coughs> and he's keen that the Christians are going to really understand and keep understanding what he's taught them in the first part of 2 Peter 1. So he says, verse 15, Moreover, he says, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my death, my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And as soon as he says that, the whole picture of the transfiguration comes back into his mind. And notice what he says. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, and the word coming there, by the way, is of a king coming in mighty power and a glorious conqueror coming into the land. He said, listen, he says, when we apostles taught you about the second coming of Jesus in power and glory with all the splendor upon him, it wasn't just a fable, you know. It's not just a nice little picture that will encourage you but won't actually come to pass. He says it's not like that. He says, listen, and what does he say? At the end of verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is in this amazing position. He is able to say, it's not a fable. It's not picture language. We've seen it. It came to pass exactly as we knew it was going to come to pass. He's glorious. We've seen him what, as he's going to be when he comes back. And I'll tell you, it's exactly as, as was stated in the Old Testament prophecies. That's the position he was in. Now, you see, I may talk about how prophecy can be literally fulfilled by quoting examples. Peter had the advantage over me. Peter was able to say, I know it's literal because I've seen it. I've seen the Lord like that. He really is coming back like that. Then he goes on. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, it says, in whom I'm well pleased. And look, and this voice which came from heaven, we heard. I, it's not fables. We heard it. There were three of us too. I wasn't mistaken. There were three of us that witnessed it. We saw him, we heard him, and I know it's going to come to pass. That's what he's saying when we were with him in the holy mount. And then verse 19 is the conclusion he comes to. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. The word of prophecy was certain, but I can testify to it so it becomes more certain, is what he's actually saying. Prophecy will be fulfilled literally, and look what he says, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And with the persecution that was going on in these days, he says what you need is prophecy. You stick with it. You know that he's coming as, as the great conqueror, as the mighty king. And no matter what's going on, I'll tell you, the second coming is going to be with power. That's what he's able to say. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It's not for a man to stand up and say, oh, well, of course it says that, but actually what it means is this. It's not saying that. Now, it's saying it doesn't matter what a man thinks about it. What it says will come to pass. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And there was Peter's testimony. I've seen prophecy fulfilled. I think, though, it was the Apostle John that received the best possible fulfillment or proof of the literal fulfillment of prophecy. And 
Um, he saw with his own eyes exactly what Jesus had said come to pass. I want to give you just a little example. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And verse 1 and 2. Oh, actually, let's go to Matthew 23, verse 38 first. And this shows just how literal prophecy is and how literally it actually comes to pass. Uh, you remember he'd been talking to the religious people in the temple, and finally they'd rejected him. So he lays into them. You're whitewashed tombs, he says. You're this, that, and the other. You travel thousands of miles just to get one convert, and when you've got the convert, you make them twice as fit for hell as you are. That's the type of language he started using to these religious Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple. And finally, he says to them, verse 38 of Matthew 23, Behold, your house, that's the temple, is left unto you desolate. And with that, he's in the middle of the temple when he says it, he turns on his heel, and with his disciples clucking at his side, he walks towards the door. And as he walks, he is saying, this is the last time I will be in this temple until I come in my glory. You've had your chance to repent, and you have rejected it. And with the disdain of a man who's been rejected, he walks through the door. Well, then in Matthew 24, verse 1, <laughs> the disciples do their usual trick. They can see Jesus is a bit angry about something, so they try and pacify him, got to make conversation. And they have this amazing knack of saying the wrong word at the wrong time, <laughs> and here they are doing it. Verse 1, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And look, and his disciples came to him for to show him the building of the temple. They're walking out, and they say, well, conversation, what, what can we say to him? Oh, Jesus, oh, how beautiful this pillar is. How wonderful that frieze is up there. Have you noticed the wonderful quality gold on the doors? Isn't it marvelous? And they're talking like this to Jesus. Well, well, you remember, he's, they're not pointing to the wall all the way round the, uh, the temple. They're pointing to the temple itself. And it was a wonderful building, marble, gold, beautiful carved wood. It was a magnificent structure. And Jesus says this, verse 2. Jesus said unto them, and there's a question mark at the end of this first bit that shouldn't be there. Uh, the way it reads in our Bibles, it says, See ye not all these things? Well, that's not it at all. In Greek, it's a command. So cut the question mark off. What he's actually saying is, See ye not all these things? Don't bother to have a look at those, he says. It's ridiculous. What on earth are you doing looking at these t this temple? You see, Jesus knows that within 37 years, I think it is, the whole temple is going to be destroyed. So why waste your time having a gaze at how marvelous the stone is? By the way, could I make an aside here? Uh, the Bible says this now, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you take a good look at that because that's beautiful. Praise God. That's more beautiful than Herod's temple or Solomon's temple ever was, if only you would know it. And the presence of God dwells inside your body. Praise God. But as for that wretched building, says Jesus, forget it. Put it out of your mind. Why? And look what it says. For verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. This is an incredible statement. He actually is not saying literally here the temple will be destroyed. He's saying that not one single stone is going to remain on top of its neighbor. They're all going to be removed. Every single stone is going to be removed. That's the statement that he is making. I want to say it again. He's not talking about the wall around the enclosure because, of course, the present-day Wailing Wall is one of the walls that was around the temple area. He's talking about the temple itself. Now, how can I be certain, and how could God be certain, that that was going to come to pass? That every single stone was going to be removed from its neighbor. God did it in a most wonderful way. And it was a foolproof way as well of making sure that came to pass. Uh, usually when a temple was sacked, people just used to come in with uh, swords and they used to chop the heads off the statues and the arm and, and uh, they used to go around desecrating, taking all the good stuff away with them and then just leave the whole place open but not the Romans. They actually set fire to the temple. 
there was actually a group of people on top of the temple roof at this time. Uh, A false prophet had said to them, Oh, the Lord showed me that if we go up onto the roof, Christ will come, the Messiah will come, and he'll rescue us. And there they were on top of the roof. They shouldn't have been a believer, because of course Jesus said, when they say, Lo, he's here, or lo, he's there, don't go out with them. And there they were on top of the temple roof. And of course, fire started all over the temple. This magnificent temple, after it had been sacked, fire broke out in every part. They all died, all the people who'd taken refuge on the roof. But as it burned, it got really red hot inside. And the gold which covered the walls and covered the pillars did something very interesting. It started melting and running down the walls. And in those days, the bricks had no mortar between them. They were just dry. And as the gold melted, it ran into the cracks between the bricks. And the most marvelous thing happened. All the, all the bricks started filling up with gold. And as soon as it got into the center of the brick, of course, it was cooler in there, and it solidified between the gold. So that finally, after the fire had finished, all the bricks had a beautiful and very expensive mortar between them. Solid gold. And we know from historical records that for 25 years, the people who lived in Jerusalem after the Roman invasion spent time every week picking up stones looking for gold. And they went along and they demolished every single stone in the whole place. There wasn't one left standing, lest there be a scrap of gold in the middle. Praise God. Do you see, that is the way that God fulfills prophecy. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And it came exactly to pass. There wasn't one stone left standing on another because there might have been a speck of gold underneath. And they dug it up and looked for gold. Every single one came to pass. Now, do you see, that is how literal prophecy can be taken. Now, that's fine for us. But the question I have to ask is, what do we do about the skeptic? What do we do about the skeptic? Because we are Bible believers. And what we've got to make sure is this. If we are presenting prophecy as a proof of the Bible, we've got to ensure two things. First of all, that the prophecy we are talking about is dated before the event that, that is prophesied. So in other words, number one, um, the prophecy dates before... The fulfillment, F for fulfillment. And secondly, that the fulfillment can be proved. Now, you've got to make sure that both of those come to pass. In other words, when the prophecy is given, it was written actually before the event occurred. You've got to make sure. The second thing is that the event really did occur. Can I demonstrate this by giving an example of a prophecy that will not do as far as a skeptic is concerned? It will do for us. I'm happy with it. But a skeptic wouldn't be. Could I just show you this? In Joshua chapter 6, all right, Joshua chapter 6, and verse 26, we just get this little little prophecy. They've just finished destroying Jericho, and Joshua pronounces a curse on any man who tries to build Jericho again. And here's what he says. Joshua, and chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. And put in English, that we can understand, what it means is this, that any man who rebuilds Jericho is going to be cursed. His eldest son will die when he lays the foundations, and his youngest son will die when he puts the gates on. Now there's a prophecy. And a passage in Scripture tells us that that was fulfilled. So having found the place, would you now turn to the fulfillment in 1 Kings, and turn to 1 Kings 16... 1 Kings 16 and verse 34, where we get the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. And you'll understand what I mean. This is lovely fulfillment, but absolutely no good as far as the skeptic is concerned. Verse 34, this is several centuries later, may I say. In his days did Hiel, 
the, the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, just as was prophesied, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, just as was prophesied, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, that's fine. Very good. Nice. But unfortunately, the skeptic would say, well, of course the Bible would support itself. He would say, but where's the proof of this? And I'm afraid there isn't any historical proof that this one actually occurred. And so, tonight, I'm going to deal, I hope I'll have time to deal, with two prophecies, both of which were definitely given before the date of their fulfillment, and both of which can be seen even today to have been fulfilled. And I'm going to take them from the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel. The book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Could I just say, by the way, here's Jeremiah. Here's Ezekiel. And they're dated from a, a couple of decades on either side of 600 B.C. Now, that's the date we give for them. And that's the date that I can prove as well uh, is their real date. But I'm not going to spend time tonight proving that. All I will say is this, that the, everyone agrees that they are dated before 250 B.C. Everyone agrees. So what we've got to look for is for prophecies given before 250 B.C., which came to pass after 250 B.C. You may say, well, why does everyone agree about this? Well, it's quite easy, because in about 250 BC, 71 scholars meeting in Alexandria in Egypt translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. You see? Including Jeremiah and including Ezekiel. And so we know for definitely that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were written just before 250 BC. So let's turn to the first. I'm cheating slightly over this one. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 26... Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 18. I'm cheating because actually he's quoting another prophet. He's quoting the prophet Micah. Micah lived 730 BC. But it doesn't matter, we'll say before 250 BC, just to be fair. So Jeremiah's quoting Micah. And in this remarkable prophecy, he gives three specific prophecies two of which we can deal with. In verse 18 of Jeremiah chapter 26, he says this, Micah the Morasthite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, and he gives three. One, Zion shall be plowed like a field. That's the first. Two, Jerusalem shall become heaps. And three, the mountain of the house, that's the place where the temple was built, as the high places of a forest. The high places of a forest, by the way, the highest hills were covered with forest in the time of Jeremiah. So, there's three. Now, the middle one, Jerusalem shall be heaps. That means it's going to be destroyed. It happened so many times, that won't help us a bit. So, we're dropping number two. And we're going to deal with the first and the last. One that Zion shall be ploughed like a field, and two, that the place where the temple was built was going to be high and higher than the rest of the land around. Now, as soon as we come to this, we've got problems because most people don't understand the difference between Zion and Jerusalem. And so I've got to give you a little bit of a geography lesson over the type of format, uh, type of layout that we see as far as Jerusalem is concerned. Now today, the situation is as follows. Jerusalem is situated on a plateau. A plateau is a flat-topped hill. And the plateau has three valleys around it. Uh, this is the situation today, by the way. Um, going from north to south, down one side on the east, is the Kidron Valley. K-I-D-R-O-N, the Kidron Valley. Coming down the west, north to south, then bending round and going along the south, we have another river called, or another valley called the Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M, valley, otherwise known as Gehenna. But that's another story. 
And that's the situation that you find. And uh, inside here, then, you have a plateau area inside, and Jerusalem's built on that. But as geographers will tell you, landscapes are always changing. It's very rare for landscape to stay still. And if Jeremiah wrote this 2,600 years ago, or thereabouts, it's probable that things had changed. And sure enough, they had changed quite a lot. Because in Jeremiah's day, there was a third valley, which was between the Kidron and the Hinnom. If you have a look at the map, I've drawn it in there. And for the people listening on tapes, they'll find the map duplicated on the back of the cardboard cover to the tape. And I'm talking about the original site of Jerusalem. And can you see there's another valley that comes down very close to the Kidron and parallel to it, finally joining it at the south. And that was called the Tyropean Valley. Now, it's spelled in two ways. I've chosen one of the ways. T-Y-R-O-P-O-E-A-N. The Tyropean Valley. So that in this day, the site of Jerusalem actually was much thinner than it was today. Because the Tyropean Valley went north-south between the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley. All right? To make it even more complicated, just north of the place where the Tyropean Valley and the Kidron Valley joined, there was another valley that went east-west and joined the Tyropean Valley to the Kidron Valley. It wasn't as deep as the other two, but it was there. And so the plateau between the Tyropean Valley and the Kidron Valley was actually in two sections. You had a very slim section, a bit carrot-shaped, I suppose. It's not quite accurate on this, but it's accurate on the map. And that was a hill, a hillock, with very steep sides. And to the north, then, of this small valley, going east-west and joining the Tyropean with the Kidron, you had a much more extensive plateau area. And these two have names. The one in the south, which is marked on the map, is Zion. That was what was meant by Zion. And the one to the north, which was much bigger, uh, we call Mount Moriah. Here was the place where Abraham took Isaac to be tested by God. And God said, you, you, I want you to kill Isaac. Take him up to Mount Moriah. And there it was, north of this little valley. Now, that was the situation in the day of Jeremiah, as far as Jerusalem was concerned. It, Jerusalem was in two sections, Zion to the south, and that was very small, and Mount Moriah to the north. And when the Bible comes in and talks about this area, there was a, a very fierce group of people called the Jebusites, J-E-B-U-S-I-T-E-S, -E the Jebusites, and they had a fortress on Mount Zion. Very large walls all the way around it. And David took one look at Mount Zion and said, I think that's the place I want to make my capital. So all we've got to do is get rid of the Jebusites and move in. And he did. And he launched an attack from the north. He wasn't going to try and get up these steep sides to the south and to the east uh, and to the west. He decided to go down the little valley in the north. And he broke through, and he, he got rid of all the Jebusites. You can read the story of it in 2 Samuel chapter 5. All right, but I'm not going through it tonight. And so David said, great, here is Mount Zion. That's what he called it. And I'm going to call it the City of David. And the City of David was this little section here. And everyone moved in. Oh, it was wonderful. And they built their houses. They'd had a very dense um, a very thickly, it was a very thickly popula populated area. Very dense concentration of population indeed in that place. And so life started. And here was the original Jerusalem. But of course David wanted a palace. He was a king. I want a palace. And on a little place that's only 40 acres in area, you can't really build a very big palace. So of course he looked over the wall and said, I think I'm going to build my palace on Mount Moriah further north. So he went over, he built his own house on Mount Moriah, and this is where he planned to put the temple as well. And it was after his death that in this area here, just to the south of Mount Moriah, he built, Solomon built, the temple of the Lord. Now, we've identified the two things. Here's Mount Zion, and here's the temple hill. There are the two of them. And the Temple Hill was higher than Mount Zion. We know that because David would always talk about going up to the Lord. 
going up to the temple of the Lord. And he used to go out, down into the little valley, climb up the next hill into the temple. But Zion was very thickly populated. You also know, don't you, that generally speaking, the oldest part of any city is the place that's the most thickly populated. Uh, in, in London today, it's the city of London that uh, really you, you just can't get spare acres in the city of London. Land is very expensive in the city of London. In Paris, the Ile de la Cité is the very built-up area and very expensive property. And can you realize what actually Micah was saying? In this day, when Zion was chock-a-block with houses, he's actually saying, oh, by the way, he said, Zion's going to be like a ploughed field. It's going to be empty. Well, that's ridiculous. It's rather like saying the city of London, in so many years' time, won't have a house in it. Well, none of us would believe it. And then he'd say, oh, yes, and the temple is going to be higher than Mount Zion. That's what I prophesy. And I can imagine that a lot of people had a good laugh. And yet the amazing thing is today that Mount Zion is a ploughed field. And so we've got to look at how it came to pass, because it's a most wonderful story. How was it that this densely populated area, Mount Zion, now hardly has a person living on it and is ploughed up and used for agriculture? How is it possible? Well, it's possible like this. Um, something started happening in Mount Moriah and Zion. Mount Moriah, where the temple was, stayed as it was. They built the temple there, they preserved the temple. But on Mount Zion, the height of the land started rising. It happened in every place where there was a city in the Middle East. They used to begin on level land, and they used to build their houses on the level land. And they used to build their houses out of mud and clay. But the trouble was, when there was a downpour of rain, the houses used to fall in. And instead of clearing away the mud and the rubble and all the other things, all they did was smooth them out and use the rubble as a new foundation. So when they built their next house, it was a foot or two feet above the level that it was at before. And so you find today, for example, that most of the cities that we talk of in the Bible, if you go out to the Middle East, you'll see a mound like this, perhaps 200 feet tall. Because if you had built 200 houses and each one went up a foot, You've now got a mound 200 feet tall. And these are the famous tells, T-E-L, tells. And the cities in the Middle East are called Tel Armana and other things like this. And they started off on level ground. Now they're on top of a hill. Lachish or Lakish, this biblical city. Now the remains are on top of a vast hill. So guess what happened? Mount Zion was densely populated, the houses fell in, they built the new house. The house fell in, they built the new house. And finally, about, four, about 200 years BC, Mount Zion now towered above the temple area. Very high above it, indeed. And all the houses were looking down on the temple. And of course, that was a major danger, because it meant that the temple, which was the center of Jerusalem, as far as the Jews was concerned, was vulnerable from Mount Zion. And so it was that a man called in 135 BC, a man called Simon Maccabees, Simon M-A-C-C-A-B-E-S, or Simon Maccabeus, as we might call it. This is the brother of Judas Maccabeus. Um, he decided it was a positive danger. So he called everyone together and he started speaking to them. And in Josephus, I'm going to quote here from Josephus's book, which is the history of the Jews, from his book, The Antiquities, and from book number 13, chapter 6 and paragraph 7, and halfway through, I'm beginning, and look what it says. This is very interesting. It says this, in 135 BC, and when Simon had done this, he thought it their best and most for their advantage to level the very mountain, that's Mount Zion itself, upon which the citadel happened to stand so that the temple might be higher than it. Isn't that remarkable? And indeed, when he had called the multitude to an assembly, he persuaded them to have it so demolished, and this by putting them in mind what miseries they had suffered by its garrison and the Jewish deserters, and what miseries they might hereafter suffer in case any foreigner should obtain the kingdom and put a garrison into that citadel. This speech induced the multitude 
uh, induced the multitude to a compliance because he exhorted them to do nothing but what was for their own good. So they all set themselves to the work and leveled the mountain and in that work spent both day and night without any intermission, which cost him three whole years before it was removed. They spent three years removing the top of Mount Zion. Isn't that staggering? And after Micah had prophesied, of course, and brought it to an entire level with the plain of the rest of the city, after which the temple was the highest of all the buildings. Now the citadel, as well as the mountain whereon it stood, were demolished. And all these actions were thus performed under Simon. And with the debris of Mount Zion, they filled up this valley here, the east-west valley, and they started filling up the Tyropean Valley as well. And today, the Tyropean Valley hardly exists at all. If you walk from one side of Jerusalem, from east to west across, across Jerusalem, all you do, you go down into a little dip and up the other side, and that's all that's left. So we end up with number three fulfilled. The temple now was higher than Mount Zion. But the trouble was, people were still living in Mount Zion. So how was the last part going to be fulfilled? Well, that occurred in AD 70, when the Romans came and sacked the city. And when they destroyed the whole city, everyone ran from Mount Zion. They fled to the north. And uh, the whole city was destroyed and, and laid to waste. And interestingly enough, 200 years after AD 70, when the Romans rebuilt Jerusalem, they kept the west wall, they kept the north wall, they kept the east wall, but guess what they did to the south wall? They moved it north. And they moved it 200 meters north of where the old valley was. And all of a sudden, here was the city, and Mount Zion was outside the city wall. The Romans fulfilled that particular prophecy. The result was that people had no defense in Mount Zion, and the result was that it was absolutely abandoned. And today, it still stands as one of the most deserted parts of Jerusalem. Now, that's a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Can you see that? It was prophesied before the event. It came to pass long after it had been prophesied. Praise the name of Jesus. And I'm going to show you a slide just afterwards of this area and show you Mount Zion, which is level and which actually is ploughed. Now, there's one specific fulfillment of prophecy, how Mount Zion became like a ploughed field and how the temple ended up towering above it. Praise the name of Jesus. That's the hand of God. He knew exactly the history that would affect this area, and he was the one that designed it to come to pass. The last one I'm going to deal with today, the last specific fulfillment, is found in Ezekiel. So go to the end of Jeremiah, through Lamentations, and into Ezekiel, and chapter 44. And here we have a magnificent fulfillment of Scripture. For Ezekiel is carried up in the Spirit, and he's made to look at Jerusalem at a future date. Now, all round Jerusalem in the walls, there were gates all the way round. There are many of them. See if I can remember how many there were. I'll try and get them all. There was water gates. I can remember that one easily. The water gate, the fountain gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the dung gate, the horse gate, the sheep gate, and the east gate. And they were, there they were, eight gates. And Ezekiel is taken in the spirit, and he's taken to the east wall. The east wall, of course, towered above the Kidron Valley. And what? What's this? He has a good look at it, and he looks at the east gate, and he can't believe his eyes. He rubs his eyes. Can't believe it. Look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 44 of Ezekiel. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh towards the east, and it was shut. This means permanently shut. What? The other gates were still open, but this one was permanently shut. Now, Lord, why is this gate shut, is what Ezekiel asks in his mind. So the Lord comes along and says, well, I'll tell you why it's shut. Verse 2. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. And who's the Lord, the God of Israel? It's Jesus. And did Jesus enter in by this gate? Well, let's have a look. Up the Kidron Valley came the road from Jericho, and came the road from Bethany, and came the little lane that led from the Mount of Olives. And on one grand day, just before his death, Jesus sends his disciples ahead and says, oh, get me an ass, will you? 
I'm going to ride into Jerusalem as the king through the east gate. It became known as the the, uh, golden gate just after this. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on an ass. All the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, they're crying, crucify him. And they rejected him. And here, 600 years before it happened, God is saying, oh yes, that is gate. I'll tell you, the Lord, the King of Israel, and the God of Israel rode in through that gate. They didn't receive him, so I'm going to shut the whole thing up. No one else is going to use that gate. And there's something more than that. Verse 3. It is for the prince, the prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. And the Jews believed that it was going to be through the east gate or the golden gate that Messiah, when he came in glory, would ride into the city. And how lovely it is to know that Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives and the closest gate to him is the east gate. And here is the amazing thing. The prophecy is that the east gate will be closed sometime between Jesus rides in the first time and sometime before he comes again and enters Jerusalem by that gate. Well, has it come to pass? That's the question that we must ask. Well, any person that's been to Jerusalem will know full well. There is one gate on the east side of the city, and it's all bricked up. No one uses it at all. Today, there is no path going in through that particular gate in Jerusalem. There's a gate called the East Gate. I've got it marked on the other map of Jerusalem. I've called it the Golden Gate there. It's totally blocked. Even today, you can see it for yourself if you visit Jerusalem today. The question is, when was it blocked up? All right? And here is the glory of the whole situation. Here is the glory. When Jesus rode through it, of course, that was in AD 33. It was the beginning of great troubles for Jerusalem. And what I want to do is just put some dates up on the board and we'll see the takeovers that occurred in Jerusalem. All right? The Romans, of course, came in AD 70. I'll read these out, actually. And AD 35. The Romans took the city and sacked the whole place. Uh, Get these others down. In 614 AD, the Persians came in and took the city. In 638 AD, the Muslims came in and took the city. In 969 AD, the Egyptians came in and took the city. Here's a very important date. In 1017 AD... The Turks took the city, and this began that period of time we call the Crusades. When the Christians came along, they were going to rescue Jerusalem. And Jerusalem changed hands this way, changed hands the other way, went through a very troublesome time. And finally, in 1517 AD, it goes back into the hands of the Turks. And it stays in the hands of the Turks till 1917, when that Bible-believing British General marches in, called Allenby, and the British take Jerusalem. And of course the history ends in 1948 when the Jews gain independence. Or really, I suppose, in 1967 when they take over the whole city. All right, now here is the history as far as Jerusalem is concerned. This is the part that affects us, 1517 AD, when the Turks took it over. And the leader of the Turks was a man called Sultan Suleiman, S-U-L-E-I-M-A-N, Suleiman the Magnificent, as they called him. There he is, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. He took one look at Jerusalem and thought, heavens, it's chaos. The walls are all flattened, the foundations are still in, but it's in real trouble, this city. I'll tell you what, I'm going to rebuild all the walls. And dear Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent started rebuilding all the walls of Jerusalem. And when he came to the East Wall, he had a look at it, and he thought, well, that's uh, that's very strange. There's the remains of a gate here, the East Gate, but there aren't any paths going in to it. Now, a normal person who was interested in defending a city would simply say, oh, well, if the gate's not used anymore, just build a wall straight across. But not Suleiman the Magnificent. He said, no, I think we'll keep the gate... We'll just make sure it's solid. And he built the gate, as, as far as he knew, 
as it was in the days of Jesus. And he built the gate, and instead of leaving it open, he filled it up with solid blocks of stone right the way through. And so the gate, which is the thickness of the wall, is filled with with stones, the thickness of the wall, so that no marauder can get in at all. And there it is, Solomon the Magnificent, 2,000 years after Ezekiel had seen it, actually fulfills the prophecy, not knowing, of course, there was ever such a prophecy as this. He was a Muslim. And he knew nothing about it. He fulfills the prophecy exactly to the letter. And there it stands, some 500 years later, or thereabouts, or or whatever uh, time it is, what is it, 400 years later, um, it stands as a testimony not only to Solomon's work, but also to the fact that God fulfills prophecy absolutely literally. I'll just give you the date when he built it exactly. It was 1534 AD. And that was the date of the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. And he filled it in. Let me tell you something that's even more magnificent. Right along the east side of the city, on this steep slope along the banks of the Kidron, right, the valley of the Kidron. There is now a graveyard. And the graveyard fills all of the land along that eastern section, going right past the eastern or the golden gate. And I think that's so magnificent, because it's almost, as I think Dr. Coustance once said, it's almost as if the dead are guarding the gate until the Lord of resurrection himself shall come and open the gate. And let me tell you what's going to happen. In those days, there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. And the Lord will descend, as he promised, on uh, on the Mount of Olives. And he will enter Jerusalem through one gate and one gate only. As soon as his feet touch, all these stones inside the gate are going to fall out. And Jesus will enter the city triumphantly and will walk into the temple of the living God. Hallelujah. That will literally come to pass just as the blocking of the East Gate or the blocking of the Golden Gate has exactly come to pass. Well, what does this show us? It tells us this, that our God not only knows everything that's going to happen, he is prepared to share with us the things that are going to happen. And he tells us this, that unless a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, He cannot be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus. He says there's only one way to avoid the eternal judgment that is coming on all men who do not believe, and that is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's been right about most of prophecy. It will certainly be right about that. If you're a believer, it means you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore it means that there is now no condemnation as far as you are concerned. It means that you are going to be face to face with the Lord. No no more sorrow, no more pain, no, no more tears. If you're an unbeliever, it means that the fearful prospect of judgment still remains ahead. It's worth thinking and asking, does Jesus really know what he's talking about when he tells us about those things? Next time, I'm going to deal with some more specific fulfillments of prophecy. God bless you.